Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. There's a full moon as I speak these words. I'm looking out the window at a super moon, one of the biggest moons of the year. It's a beautiful sight and it is understandable why so many of us became obsessed with the journeys to the moon conducted in the late 20th century by NASA. We've heard already on this podcast on the anniversary of Apollo 11. The extraordinary story of the first, the first flight that landed successfully on the moon. Kevin Fong was there, Professor Kevin Fong all-round legend was there to tell us about that and he's got another podcast series out now about Apollo 13. Apollo 13 some say it was unlucky from the start it was due to take off at 1313 on the 11th of April it was due to arrive on the moon on the 13th of April but it never arrived for reasons that you're about to find out. So Kevin Fong is on the podcast Kevin is not only a superb doctor a healthcare specialist and author broadcaster Kevin at the moment is playing a central role in the COVID response by, from NHS England. He's got a strategic role and I for one feel enormously comforted and happy that Kevin Fong is on the front line of this battle against the virus. Because if anyone is going to contribute, it is Kevin Fong. He's a friend, he's a friend and he's a national treasure. This podcast is all about Apollo 13. I caught up with him just before he went into full-time action stations against COVID. He talked me through the flight of Apollo 13 in his usual wonderful way. You can see history. You can see as much history as you like. You can go back and listen to all our other podcasts on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. In these times, it might be useful to have an endless supply of history to watch. If you do that over at History Hit TV, if you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free, and then you get a month for just one pound euro or dollar after that. So the next two months of lockdown for just one pound euro dollar sounds pretty good. So check it out, everyone. Thank you very much for signing up. Lots of people are doing that at the moment. It's good to have you on board. And in the meantime, everyone, here is the legend that is Kevin Fong. Kevin Fong, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. It was only a few months ago that you were on talking about what turned out to be, no doubt because you're on history, a smash hit global phenomenon, which was your 30 Minutes to the Moon. Now, obviously, you're back with the big one. We are, and we're back less than a year later because NASA cracked out their further missions to the moon in pretty rapid succession. So Apollo 13, the third mission to the moon happened less than 12 months after the first landing of Apollo 11. So, yeah, we're back covering that 50th anniversary this April. That is insane. So, so okay, so talk me through. You go, so Apollo 11 lands on the moon. When's the next one When's the next one go up? So I think Apollo 12 is in November of the same year, 69. So, you know, just to show that it wasn't a fluke, they put together Apollo 12. Apollo 12 has a fairly heroic story. It's taking off off the launch pad and is struck by lightning on its way out and everything goes haywire. But one of the flight controllers saves that mission. And then they get away and they do that. And then uh, by the time April rolls around, 1970, they're lining up for mission number three to the moon, which is Apollo 13. As you say, though, that is there's something about that. It's like Nagasaki following after Hiroshima. You know, once you could say, well, they threw, they put all their eggs in one bus. To go twice in six months is, is amazing. Oh, it is incredible. It's incredible that they decided to go even more than once, really, when you look at the risks involved. And here's the thing. So by the time they're going for the third time, and I, I find this incredible, by the third time they're going, they're sending people off the surface of the Earth at 25,000 miles an hour to a celestial body that lies a quarter of a million miles away. Only the fifth and sixth people to walk on the moon should have been. 
the American public have lost interest. No one's covering it. It's like, it's not, it's no big thing anymore. And, and so this is a feat that it barely existed at the limits of their consciousness less than 12 months earlier. And now it's like, oh, we, we, that's what we do. We go to the moon. So, so there's, there's very little press hoopla about this mission when it's gearing up. Isn't that amazing? And I could not tell you the names of the astronauts on Apollo 12. I mean, so that just shows. I mean, yeah, you'd just, we just assume it's just baked in. Oh, yeah, we go to the moon. I, well, I know. It's, isn't it horrific that in the whole history of the world... There's only 12 people who have ever set foot on the surface of the moon, and yet we can basically only manage Armstrong and Aldrin. And it's, it's shocking, really. It's shocking. But Apollo 13 comes around, and people are like, yeah, let's not cover that in the news. We understand. We go to the moon. There's not much press hoopla in the build-up. There's a little bit of coverage because there's this weird thing that happens where one of the crew members of Apollo 13, the crew should have been commanded by a guy called James Jim Lovell, and Fred Hayes was uh, a rookie astronaut, and then there was going to be Ken Mattingly, who was also going to be there. But Ken Mattingly gets exposed to a case of the German measles pre-launch, and so they scrub him out of his mission, and they replace him with a guy called Jack Swigert. So, so he's cancelled the last minute. The press think that's a bit interesting, but not very, and then the launch happens. What we've everyone has now listened to your first podcast, your series. How was Apollo 13 different to Apollo 11? What had they absorbed? What had, got, what had improved? So if the mission had gone to plan, this was meant to be a genuinely sort of scientific expedition. James Lovell was quite a romantic explorer. I mean, he's, he's, he's a Navy test pilot, and he'd flown in the U.S. Navy in carrier operations, so he was an impressive guy. But he, he was sort of in love with a romantic idea of exploration. He thought this was his Lewis and Clark adventure. He... He designed the mission patch, and wonderfully he talked to us about it when we interviewed him. And, and he's an incredible guy. I can't remember. I think he's 92 or 93 now. It's something. He's in his 90s, crystal clear. And he talks about choosing the logo for the mission patch. So when you fly, you have these cloth mission patches that you stitch onto your suits. The motto is Ex Luna Scientia, so, so from the moon, knowledge. And he called his command module Odyssey because that's what he thought he was going on. So total romance and a total desire to go to the Fraumara Highlands, so these very cratered area of the moon, to do some proper geological survey. So they've gone past the point where this is, you know, you get to the moon and you do it like a bank job. You get in, you get out, you stay alive. And now they're going to hang around, they're going to dig stuff up. They're really going to try and do some survey. And he's up for all of that, and he longs to set foot on the moon. And the important thing to remember about Jim Lovell is he was a member of the crew as a rookie, that flew on Apollo 8, and they flew around the moon. They didn't land on it in 1968, which itself was a heroic mission. So he's seen the moon from about 100-and-something nautical miles altitude, and he, want, he wants more desperately than anything else to set foot on it. And this is his mission. He's in command. He's going. And so when he launches on, I think it's April the 11th, 1970, he's so up for it. And then it all goes wrong. But, but was it the same technology, the same methods... Or had they learnt, as I have learnt so much from Apollo 11 and from your series, as it were? <laughs> it's the same technology when they go on Apollo 13. And later on, they start upping the ante and taking lunar rovers. But for these missions, it's the same rubric as Apollo 11 and Apollo 12. But they're easier about the whole thing. In a way, it's well known for them by this point, at least operationally. So, you know, they're in their groove. 
but it's the same mission, but it has all the same risks as, as, as Apollo 11. Although in the minds of the media it was routine, it's still desperately, desperately dangerous. It's still desperately risky. So yeah, same, same mission, same technology, same sorts of risks as Apollo 11, but now this is just the third time you're doing it. Okay, then tell me, what, so what goes wrong? They take off, they blast into space, and then what happens? So blast into space, and it's hilarious talking to Lovell about this. He's like, yeah, it's old hat for me. I'm just racing off the Earth, you know, on a Saturn V rocket. I'm, he's telling his two rookie astronauts, you know, Swigert and Hayes, what to expect as they peel off. They have five big engines on the first stage of the Saturn V, and they have a dropout of one of the engines. And he says, yeah, but they ride through that. It's not a big deal. And he says, you know, that's our big... That's going to be our, our big glitch for this mission. Every mission has a glitch. That was ours. But he's wrong. They get into orbit around the Earth. They inject themselves on their translunar trajectory. So you basically you go around the Earth a couple of times. You check everything out. You fire your engine to get you on a translunar trajectory. So that pings you out of Earth orbit on the way to the moon. And they're coasting then for an uneventful couple of days. On the third day, two, nearly 200,000 miles from Earth, they've just done a television broadcast back to Earth, but no one's watching. The press don't turn up to the press gallery. The networks can't be bothered to carry it live because, you know, what's there to see? Just three men hurtling through space on their way to the moon. We've seen this one before. And they just finished that. He doesn't really know that no one's particularly watched that. And they're just settling in for the night. And they do this thing where they... Uh, this fascinating piece of technology they have these oxygen tanks and they hold cryogenically stored oxygen so oxygen held below its boiling point which is minus 183 degrees celsius so insanely cold and it sits there in this tub like sort of almost layered like like a sort of fog i guess gene krantz the flight director described it as a slush and they have to stir it every now and again and they click the switch and it stirs up only there's this problem. The tank is faulty because it's been damaged about 18 months earlier. There's a bare wire sitting in a tank of pure oxygen. And when they flick the switch, it sparks and it blows the tank up and starts a fire in the command and service module. And it just takes out almost every vital system of that module. And so suddenly they're sitting there and they're watching all the alarms come on at the same time. And they can't believe what they're seeing. And this is... Mission Control are seeing this, the astronauts are seeing this, and they're thinking, this can't be true, because if this is true, we're dead. And so, back in Mission Control, there's just denial. This was the fascinating thing for me. So I've always seen this as, you know, NASA just ice cold, sang froid, just sail through this and just deal with it. But we talked to the controllers who dealt with it, and, you know, one of them was saying, look, this was such a bad failure. If what we were seeing down in Mission Control was real... It was a failure so profound and so widespread that I thought I should just pack up and go home. There's nothing I can do. And the other thing I found quite impressive, listening to the audio. You know, the podcast is all about listening to the mission audio and trying to find out more from, from listening to that audio than you already know of the story. These were young people. So the average age of the flight controllers, the people who controlled the mission, was 26 years old. And when you hear them on Apollo 11, you can't believe they're 26-year-olds. They're so confident. You know, they're so complete in their answers. They're so sure of themselves. In that opening hour of that accident, after the tank blows up, you can hear this hint of fearful youth. You can hear this dissembling amongst them. And Gene Krantz, who's their flight director, their leader, it's all he can do is to stop them disintegrating. So for me... 
in terms of listening to how the decisions are made, the decision-making here, that, that was fascinating. Okay, so basically how on earth did they get back to Earth after that? I mean, that's ridiculous. So there's an explosion and a fire in the command and service module. How did they survive? So the command module is this cone-shaped vehicle that's pretty robust. And underneath it, there's this sort of cylindrical thing called the service module that has their engine and their supplies you know, and life support. So the fire and the explosion happens in there. So they're walled off from it. So they just hear this thump, this explosion, really, and then see every alarm come on. But they can't see the fire. They just know that something's going wrong. They're losing oxygen and they're losing power. Now, you talk about losing power and you think, well, I've been in a power cut in my house. It's not that big of a deal. You sit around, you sing songs around candles. But for a spacecraft, the power is the lifeblood of the vehicle. The power, the electricity is what keeps the vehicle alive, and the vehicle is what keeps the astronauts alive. So if the power dies, the crew die. And with no uncertainty at all, they realise that they are losing all the oxygen into space. It's just ruptured. The tanks are just ruptured. They're losing all, and they're losing their power. So the vehicle is dying, and they're about to follow suit. And so what they do is make that realisation, and then they have to accept that this vehicle is dying. It's like a sinking ship. And you do what you do in any sinking ship. You abandon ship into the lifeboat. So what they do is, is on the Apollo missions, there's two vehicles. There's the command module, which takes them from Earth to the moon. There's the lunar module, which is this flimsy-looking spidery vehicle that takes them from lunar orbit down to the surface of the moon. And they bail into that. They use it as a lifeboat. It's supposed to be the vehicle that they'll land on the moon in, but actually they're now using it as a lifeboat. And that's their temporizing measure. So the first thing they do is live, and that's hard enough. They get themselves into the lifeboat, they shut down their command module. And then after that is this amazing 87 hours of just fight, fight, fight. And you, you almost couldn't make it up. It's live today, die tomorrow. The whole thing is, okay, we've managed to get them into the lifeboat. Now what? Well, now we're going to run out of power short of Earth. Okay, we'll solve that problem. Now what? Oh, now we've realized we're going to run out of life support before we get back to Earth. And so it's con you know continuous over this next 87 hours, this just rotating battle against a vehicle that's trying to die underneath them and them trying to stretch out the resources in the vehicle and get them the remaining 300,000-odd miles all the way back to the moon, round the back of the moon, and then round back to Earth. So what is the secret to that? Well, it resides in the leadership of the flight directors, corralling this young, gifted, but very, very young crew of flight controllers, it's about the superlative performance of the astronauts who, who are there executing these recommendations that are being made to them by people on the ground. And the other thing is the strength of their preparation. So that's really interesting. So I always thought Apollo 13 was this story of wall-to-wall -wall improvisation. It was, you know, the heart was ripped out of their command module, and so they just made up their means of survival over the next four days. But actually, when we talked to these guys, they said, no, no, no we had anticipated the possibility of many of these types of failures, just not all at the same time. And we had some ready-made plans for quite a lot of it. We had procedures. We had written down procedures. So when, for example, they have to abandon ship and shut down the command module, they have a procedure that says, this is how you shut down the command module in a real hurry. And when they need to use the lunar module as a lifeboat, they have a vague procedure for that. So basically, this is all testament to the depth of preparation of NASA as an organization. It's not that they don't improvise, they just know that improvisation in the moment is a dangerous thing because you can have hidden flaws in the plans. So they standardize everything they do until they absolutely have to improvise. And for me, that was the big lesson. You know, in my day job as a doctor and 
covering emergency cases, that was what I took away from that. I was like, well, you have to have a solid foundation of standardization that allows you to respond to something like that. And then you improvise only when you have to. And when you do that, you do that as obsessively as you can. But be wary of it. We've seen the movie. It was this idea that you kind of, in terms of that small bit of improvisation, it was finding out everything was on boards, patching together systems. I mean, what was the most unlikely... So what was the most improvised element of this operation? So by far and away, the most improvised element was the carbon dioxide scrubber. So as they come around the moon, as they're headed back towards the Earth, they realise that actually they've got enough oxygen probably to last them, but they have a problem because the carbon dioxide they're breathing out is building up in the cabin. Now, normally that's scrubbed out by these canisters of lithium hydroxide, but they're running out. And so they're running out in the lunar module and they can't go and get the spare canisters from the command module because they're the wrong shape. It's just literally one is a round canister and the other one is, is a square cylinder. So they have to make an adapter that allows them to put the square cylinders adapt them to go into the round filter holes for the lunar module. And so that requires them to just work out what they've got on board the vehicle, uh, turn that into this sort of Heath Robinson-looking thing that allows you to do something that was never intended. And, and they're using literally the covers of, of instruction manuals, of, of emergency flight manuals on the book. They're using sort of duct tape and all the rest of that. One I'd never appreciated was when the guys in Mission Control build this thing they say this is how we're going to do it we're going to build this adapter made out of sheets of cardboard and sellotape and stuff when they then describe that to the guys on the mission there is no visual cue for them you know and you you take it so for granted that we live in a visual world and you say you know don't worry here's a picture i'll I'll just (laughs) I'll, i'll just i'll just text you the picture there's nothing there's no video link between the two places so they're playing this sort of executive party game of reading up these instructions verbally, and the guys have to basically understand through the, the, the spoken description what they have to build, and they have to build something upon which their lives depend. It's incredible that they pulled that off. Incredible. Okay, so you taught me all about the command module in the first chat we have. So let me get it right. They're sitting in the spidery lunar lander, yeah, which is tiny and which is built only to hold two people for a couple of days and now it has to hold three people for four days. But that only has an engine on it. That only has rockets to get it back to the like mothership, right, which it then docks with. Right, so the engine on the lunar module is weaker than the engine on the command and service module. The command and service module is a big, punchy engine that's meant to inject you on the way to the moon and inject you on the way back to Earth. The lunar module has a weaker engine, but it's designed to burn for longer because it's you know meant for hovering around and finding a landing spot on the moon. So what they do is they use the lunar module to sort of as their primary engine to shunt their command module. You know the way a sort of locomotive would shunt a, a train carriage. They've rehearsed that partially in early missions, but not to the extent that they did it in Apollo 13. The command module, they've had to escape from it. They, they climb back in that for re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. So, here, so here's the problems, And this is, this is what makes it such a difficult problem. At the point at which the explosion goes, and they have to abandon the command module, they get into the lunar module, and sure enough, that can give them oxygen to breathe in a, a safe harbour while they're travelling around the moon and back to Earth. But that can't re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. That, the skin of the lunar module is so thin that you could stick a pencil through it. You know, it was that thin. 
And so it's never going to survive re-entry. It's not built for that. It's flimsy, flimsy as hell. So when they get back to Earth, they then have to bail back into the command module and prepare for re-entry. And this is the thing. They had to do this incredible staged set of problem solving. You have to survive the day after the explosion, and then you have to have this long-range view of what's going to kill you now, what's going to kill you next hour, what's going to kill you tomorrow, what's going to kill you in four days' time if you live that long. And then you have to split off all these teams and get them going and solve that stuff. It was amazing listening to these guys 50 years on talking about being part of that and the way that they talked about, you know, what their approach was and just how willing they were to go to the map for this. And that's the other thing that was interesting was when bad things happen, when you have these disasters, they usually unpack over a few seconds or minutes. And then people write entire books about, you know, Chisley Sullenberger landing on the Hudson when both his engines failed. That's 208 seconds. And he's superlative throughout that whole time. But these guys are at it for 87 hours of this sort of slow motion car crash that threatens to kill them at every point. And at every point, they just refuse to give up on it. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Get all the way back. But they do have to get back in the command module. They have to get back into the command module. And, you know, these are things that I didn't appreciate until we spoke to them, you know, and interviewed them for the podcast, was, you know, that whole thing of, well, if you can stretch the lunar module long enough to get back to Earth, can you then get yourself back into the command module? Will the command module work once you've got back into it? Will it survive the re-entry? Is it damaged too much? And it's sort of an article of great faith. You know, a lot of the contributors talk to us in literal religious terms about how they felt about the mission because they, were, they felt there was so much against them. And did the three astronauts think that they were going to burn up on re-entry? When they'd survived the initial shot, they're in the lunar lander, they're heading back to Earth, did they actually think they were going to pull this off? So it's really interesting that. It's really interesting that because I, I got a chance to ask Jim Lovell that. You know, we did this lovely interview with him and he was really honest about it, really honest about it. And there's this press conference of the crew that they have very shortly after they've returned and someone asks them that question, indirectly says, did you think you were going to die? And they kind of brush it aside because as you do if you're a... US Navy te- former US Navy test pilot, someone's asking you if you were worried you were going to die. You ask him 50 years on, he's like, yeah, I had a very good idea. I was, I was probably not going to make it. You know, and think, and think about that, right? So I've heard people interviewed about incidents in which, you know, something crazy happens and people always say, did you think you were going to die? And they're like, nope, never crossed my mind. And I believe it of people in whom they're facing something that unpacks over a few minutes because actually you probably don't have time to. But if you're in a vehicle that's just blown up and killed your life support and killed your supply of power, and you're now you know, improvising some solutions on the way back, and then that's unpacking over 87 hours, you have plenty of time to have a dark tea time of the soul. And that's not unique, but it's a very unusual situation to be in, to, to be trying to save your own life, have people trying to save your lives, but have time to stop and have that existential crisis about the whole thing. And it's very clear... From the interviews, the astronauts, certainly Jim Lovell admits that he felt, yep, I thought maybe I wasn't going to survive, which is incredible. Did any of them go back into space afterwards? Yes, well, that's Lovell's last mission. And that's why it's quite mournful for Lovell. Lovell's a veteran by this point. He's his fourth mission in space. And he so wanted to go to the moon. That was the prize. And this was going to be his last mission. So he never goes again. 
and it's interesting because I think the mission of Apollo 13 wouldn't be remembered the way it is if he'd just landed on the moon. But for him, he would have preferred to have landed. And, and Fred Hayes said the same thing to me. He said, I said, you know, given how famous, how epic the story has now become, would you have preferred to have flown a mission that was successful but, but not remembered? Or would you have preferred to have had this? And he said, yeah, I would have preferred to have done my mission successfully and landed on the moon. And so that, I thought, was interesting too. Hayes does go back. He is part of the uh, shuttle era. So he is responsible for test flying and qualifying the space shuttle. So Swigert doesn't go back into space, I don't think. I can't remember. I don't think he does. And I guess last question, what effect did Apollo 13 have on the Apollo program? Because on one hand, it could have boosted it back up to public awareness, but on the other hand, it was a, an expensive failure. It is interesting that. I think that it probably helped revive interest in what had been something that people had lost sight of as a daring endeavor you know this is the thing about the six missions to the moon that none of them was routine and none of them was without mishap and none of them was without instance which you thought wow they were lucky to get through that but apollo 13 underlines just how much jeopardy there was in those missions you know 11 has the drama of the computer failure on the way down and the low level fuel you know just before landing 12 is struck by lightning on the way up 13 has the explosion. I think it's 14 where <laughs> this bizarre thing happens where the abort switch gets armed by a floating bit of solder and they have to drag some computer program out of bed and he has to read up a computer program to the crew so they can disarm the abort switch. So it was never routine. And Apollo 13, I think, underlines just how dangerous the whole thing was. It was absolutely fascinating talking to this team of people 50 years on with them able to be perhaps for the first time fully honest about what that experience was for them and to look at how just close how precarious the whole thing was how close to the edge the whole thing was and so you know it was a great honor i loved making it as much as i loved making the first season so yeah i hope you're gonna love listening to it too I mean, the first season was just groundbreaking. It was just some of the best factual content anywhere in the world and award-winning and widely listened to. I hope this does as well. I hope the BBC have got any sense and they just commission season three, four, five, six, seven and just do the whole of human spaceflight. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. What's it called? Let's make sure everyone can listen to it. It's, so it's a BBC World Service podcast. It's 13 Minutes to the Moon uh, season two uh, and it's the story of Apollo 13. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.